This is Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. Now, here's Lisa Miller. Welcome, friends. Our early start to this year's hurricane season has only reinforced the need to better protect our homes and businesses from floodwaters. In fact, Tropical Storm Crystal Ball in early June left a swath of swamp neighborhoods from Florida and Louisiana north through Wisconsin and Michigan. It seems every week or two there's a major flood in the news somewhere in our great country, and it isn't just in coastal or other areas near bodies of water anymore. Increasingly, the threat is in our urban areas, including some of the biggest, most populous cities in the country. Most of those homes likely had no flood insurance to cover the loss. A new study by Value Penguin shows that among America's 100 largest cities, only 4 in 10 homes in high-risk flood zones have federal flood insurance. And in seven cities, it's even worse, with only 2 in 10 homes in high-risk zones being covered. Our guests today on the Florida Insurance Roundup, they say forget about this high-risk zone. A lot of the urban flooding is often happening outside those high-risk zones in areas that presumably aren't supposed to flood. Joining us is Professor Sam Brody of Texas A&M University, who is the director of the Center for Texas Beaches and Shores. His joint study with the University of Maryland is titled The Growing Threat of Urban Flooding, a National Challenge. Also joining us is Alec Bogdanov principal scientist and co-founder of Brazaga, a Fort Lauderdale-based firm that assists businesses and communities in becoming more resilient to the effects of sea level rise and long-term environmental changes. Gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us. Sam, where is this urban flooding occurring and, and why is it? Urban flooding is kind of this hidden danger among all flood risks in the United States, and it's particularly occurring in areas that are uh, growing quickly, uh, where development accompanies impervious surfaces, such as roadways, driveways, parking lots. Uh, And because of this, the natural drainage pattern is changing and we're seeing flood impacts in unexpected areas, sometimes miles outside of the FEMA designated 100-year floodplain. And you know what's so interesting is I think when we hear the FEMA 100-year floodplain, many people think if I'm not in that plane, I'm okay. So to clarify, urban flooding pertains to rain events and not the so-called high tide or sunny day flooding like, like we see some of our South Florida folks. Isn't that right? In our study, yes. So we, we're looking at uh, episodes of heavy, both chronic and acute rainfall Uh, That doesn't mean that urban flooding can't be caused by tidal events. In our study, we picked up on FEMA's cue and looked primarily at rainfall, uh, rainfall in areas that are built up with homes and businesses. And our good friend Alec, who's in gorgeous Fort Lauderdale, Florida, what I'll call the heart of South Florida in storm country, (laughs) What's the situation there with urban flooding, Alec, and, and your studies and your research? What's happening? Thanks, Lisa, and thanks for having me. Sure. It's interesting because what gets a lot of attention right now is the tidal flooding or the sunny day flooding. And 
ultimately what we're seeing is our stormwater systems, which are meant for taking that rain and putting it out to sea or in the canals, making sure that our neighborhoods don't flood, they're actually becoming conduit for saltwater. So as, as the sea levels rise, as we see more what we call kind of inflow and infiltration in the system, the saltwater comes up and a lot of the flooding we see on those sunny days is caused by the stormwater system allowing that water to back up into our communities. The challenge then comes if you end up with a high tide, sunny day flooding example, and instead of it being a sunny day, it's a rainy day, you now have to wait for the tides to go down before that water is going to go out. And so wow. we're beginning to see more of these compound flooding examples that Sam alluded to, where you have high tide flooding, which coincides with rainfall, and really are only, you know, until we, we have a substantial modification to our system, we really just kind of have to wait for the tide water to go down. So in essence, whenever the water falls from the sky, it's not like that rainwater decides to coordinate with the tides. I think what the two of you are talking about is that this phenomenon is greatly affecting businesses and homes to the point where I think it should become a part of the conversation when it comes to insurance to cover the losses that occur when the rains and the high tides don't coordinate, if I can say it that way. So, Sam, you hear about the flood protection gap, that difference between, you know, what the policyholder or the homeowner has and the actual value of their flood damage. And I know in Hurricane Harvey, the estimated insured losses were like $30 billion, but the overall damage was three times that, almost $90 billion. So more than 75% of those flooded properties had no flood insurance. Do you believe that some of that flooding certainly came from the urban areas that you talk about in your report? I do. I, I think the, the research shows that's definitely the case. To give you an example, um, we saw neighborhoods that were miles away from um, any known flood risk zone, but those neighborhoods were surrounded by sound walls. Uh, were bifurcated by uh, roadways or railroad tracks. Those are all built environment barriers so that these features of the built environment are creating the flood hazard and the associated impact. They're either exacerbating or entirely creating the situation of risk. And FEMA's models, which are all based on stream channels, don't account for those growing areas of risk and impact. Harvey was a obviously one of the biggest urban flood events in U.S. history. What it did, in my mind, was it brought to light a lot of these underlying conditions, and it's a confluence of factors. It's it's built environment variables. It's aging stormwater infrastructure. Um, it's rising sea level uh, and more intense episodes of rainfall. All of that coming together is showing these trends that more and more people are being impacted by floods that don't have insurance, that don't have the communication from their local governments to prepare uh, and mitigate against potential flood risks. And so that the Im impact in economically is, is growing over time. Throw that into situations like Miami-Dade and parts of North Carolina coast and, and New Orleans where it's rare, but there is a threat of what Alec 
rightly cause compound flooding where you have a tidal event on top of a heavy rainfall event. Um, they don't even have to co-locate geographically. You could have a thousand year rainfall event in a coastal watershed 50 miles upstream uh, that sends more water uh, volume and velocity of runoff downstream uh, into a tidal event. And there you have a collision of different flood risks that causes real devastation, mostly to low-lying coastal communities. So, Sam, you did a study following that, and I'm going to hear from Alec in just a second, where 400 respondents from all 50 states discussed, responded to a survey on the size of our country's urban flooding problem. What did you find out? And did anybody make any great suggestions on how to fix it? Because I'm going to have Alec talk about that as well. Sam? Yeah, so so our, our national study with uh, Jerry Galloway at University of Maryland uh, had three components. The first was looking at historical uh, data analysis at different spatial scales. The second was outreach and communication. And the third was a nationally representative survey uh, that Dr. Galloway uh, was the point person on. And we were surprised at what we found. For example, um, 83% of respondents indicated they had experienced urban flooding in their communities. Uh, almost half indicated that the flooding occurred in numerous areas throughout their community. And to me, the number one surprising result among all the results was that 85% of respondents across the country experienced urban flooding outside of the FEMA special flood hazard area, which means this is a problem. It's growing nationwide. There are hot spots like Miami, Palm Beach, Houston of urban flooding, but this is something that needs to be addressed at all scales, starting from the national level down to the local. And Alec, he keeps talking about Miami-Dade, which is your neck of the woods. I know, Brazaga, your firm and your colleagues are screaming from the mountaintops, if you will, about what we can do about this. Talk to us about what's going on in your orbit, trying to mitigate urban flooding, talking to policymakers, sounding the alarm bell. What are you doing about it? You know, one of the interesting points that Sam made and it's a really communicate. It's a communication challenge. Is you know really the flood zones with FEMA are binary. You're either in or you're out. But you know we have we've worked with clients who are like, oh, I'm in the hundred year flood zone, right? So they think they have a one percent chance every year. But the reality is, you can be in a much higher risk zone within that hundred year flood zone than kind of FEMA dictates from their maps. And this is a, a hard thing to communicate sometimes with residents with businesses that you may actually even have a higher risk than one in a hundred just because you're in a special flood hazard area. And I just wanted to see what, if Sam had anything to kind of add on that before getting into the solutions, because that's a challenge we deal with a lot. Alec, you're right. Uh, um, one of the, the disadvantages of the FEMA floodplain designation is it's dichotomous. You're in or you're out. And we're trying to have people understand that's, it's not if you're in or out, it's how far you are from that boundary. And there are gradients of risk uh, extending outward from the 100-year floodplain that people need to be aware of. And in our own work, we've come up with a new method to predict and map the hazard and the risk 
not using uh, physics, H&H models, but using statistics and machine learning techniques to be able to predict on a gradient where the highest risk statistically is going to be in the future. And so it goes from zero to a thousand plus years risk. Uh, and we're then not just mapping and modeling, but we're developing visualization and communication tools to go into these local neighborhoods and help them understand and act upon the risk that we're showing. And I think that's the future of um, where we're headed nationally. FEMA is a funder of this project, so they recognize we may not replace the FEMA floodplain maps, but we can augment them um, and complement them with the bottom line being helping uh, residents be more prepared and mitigate the adverse impacts of floods. And insurance is just one of many tools and techniques that homeowners and decision makers can act upon. Alec? Yeah. And, and, you know, it's when we talk about solutions, we really talk about insurance as a a risk transfer. And ultimately what you want is insurance to be the last risk transfer. And I, th- I think I may have stolen that from Lisa. You know, we, we want to do as much as we can to protect people so that they don't have to use insurance. Because once you've gotten to that point, it's not just your property and your contents that are being damaged, your life is being interrupted, you know, and, and all of the emotional challenges that come with dealing with a flooded structure as well. And, you know, I'm lucky to live in Broward County. Um, I tell folks that every day, um, as crazy as it is sometimes, you know, we are really leading the nation when it comes to how we're addressing sea level rise. And a lot of credit goes to Dr. Jennifer Harada, who's the chief resilience officer here. We have, you know, a hundred year flood map that's future looking, that's really used for for development purposes. It's not used for flood insurance, but we use it for development purposes. The city of Fort Lauderdale has one of the most progressive seawall ordinances. And ultimately, you know, these seawalls that used to be purely an erosion structure to kind of stop the land from eroding are now also staying floodwater. So they're an important part of our flood protection system. And on top of that, you know, Broward County is looking at disclosure. Uh, They recently passed uh, an ordinance that is requiring flood disclosure. So we're we're making these, I will call it incremental change, but they're fairly significant changes that are really making our community more resilient. And we're beginning to now get to a point where we're putting infrastructure in the ground. Obviously, everyone knows Miami Beach has already done that. Um, in addition, you know, encouraging resilient design. There's nothing that uh, really is as beneficial to protecting your future and your property than building resiliently and making sure that your home, your property, your business is protected. So we know that this resiliency is the buzzword, which back in my day, it was called mitigation, and which is still there, but resiliency is the word of the day. And we know the federal government has created a program dealing with building resiliently. So over to you, Sam, Texas, Alec in Florida, two coastal states. What is the action plan going forward? When the federal government comes out with what's called the BRIC program, building resilience in in communities, if I'm not mistaken, um, there will not be enough money. We know that. Whatever the allotted amount is, there's going to be more people that want that money than not. If you were king for a day, Alec, 
what criteria would you use to evaluate who gets federal assistance or federal funds or grant funding, et cetera, to make these buildings and these applications more resilient and decide who gets what to make it happen? How would you do that, Alec? You you have asked uh, the the trillion dollar question, we can call it. Uh, you know, how do you begin to create an action plan that really looks at what is more important than others? Um, I think the challenge with that is we really think in political boundaries as a society, and water doesn't care about political boundaries. Uh, if if you build resiliently in one community, build higher in one community, you could end up hurting another community. And I really think we need to focus on projects of regional importance that one community cannot do on their own. These are, this is really how we're going to build resilience in communities is by thinking regionally. And the example I can give you is right here in our own backyard, which is the central and southern Florida flood control system. It was a system built by the federal government, and it's arguably one of the most complex flood control systems in the world. Uh, you know, there it goes from Lake Okeechobee south. We have thousands of miles of canals, but these canals are protected by what we call salinity control structure, flood control structures. And right now, uh, a significant number of them are at risk of failure because of sea level rise. So even if communities like Fort Lauderdale, like Parkland are taking the right approaches, if we don't think collaborative, we don't think regional, we're not going to be resilient, even if we want to be. Sam, what do you say to that? Alec is absolutely right. If we don't think regionally, we're going to come up with the wrong answer. And there's been a long history of watershed-based planning and conservation in Florida, uh, Texas, after Hurricane Harvey, really had a wake-up call. It was, a, it was a real triggering event. And coming out of that uh, is a new program led by the Texas Water Development Board, uh, where they've carved up the state in watersheds, and they're creating plans around these watersheds, uh, participatory collaborative plans, with the sole purpose of understanding better and planning for the unintended consequences of developing upstream, uh, putting more water downstream and causing impacts for downstream communities. So I'm really elated to see that happen in Texas. Uh, it's happening in other parts of the country as well. I, I blame it on strong leadership and the biggest storm Texas has ever seen and uh, the country's ever seen. And, and moving that along. It's part of a larger initiative in Texas, again, to, to pile on, on Alex's great comments, that in insurance and the way we've operated in the past is reactionary. So insurance instrument implicitly says, you're going to flood, we're going to pay you to rebuild. And we're trying to, to move places like Texas and other places away from this reactionary model of mitigation and more towards a proactive protection-based approach, which says, we hope you don't ever need to use insurance because we're going to create policies, uh, techniques, and solutions to ensure that you're not going to flood in the first place and we're going to protect you. And that shifts the focus more towards uh, planning and avoidance, uh, more towards uh, infrastructure that takes a regional approach, 
uh, and looks outward and, and understands the impact of changing climate and future human conditions on the coast. It's a big challenge, and there's obviously not enough money to fix the problem all over the United States, but I think it's a really bold step that Texas has taken towards shifting that discussion of how we reduce the impacts of future storms, not react to it, but proactively protect against it. Um, and over the long term, there's going to be less need for federal funding outside support because these communities will be more resilient in the first place. If I'm, and I'm so grateful to have both of you on the phone today, I think a, a great reminder that it, to, to summarize a lot of what you're saying is that flooding is the most frequent disaster and most expensive, and it leaves lasting economic devastation to the communities and to those who can't afford to repair or replace it without insurance. And I know that as Alex started in his discussion, it's a communication issue. It's a leadership issue. And two of you are great leaders. Sound of the alarm bell. Keep up the great work. So I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to us. I know our audience is going to be following your work. I hope they do. Again, those that are listening, it's Professor Sam Brody of Texas A&M University and the director of the Center for Texas Beaches and Shores and Alec Bogdanoff, who's a principal scientist and co-founder of Rosaga, who's headquartered in Fort Lauderdale and has oceanography and meteorology degrees. So these are scientists that speak English. And often I say, tell the truth when sometimes it's not very popular. So Sam, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me, Lisa. And Alec, as always, it's a pleasure. Always a pleasure, Lisa. Thank you. Just to remind those listening, if you don't have flood insurance, your possessions, your life savings, everything's at risk, and you're on, and we are on hook on the hook as a taxpayer to subsidize those neighbors without flood coverage. And I think every day it's incumbent upon us as Floridians and Americans to ask our friends and family, do you have it? And when they say, I don't live in a flood zone, we say what Sam said, the water doesn't understand a line on a map. So the heavier weather, greater frequency and severity of flood events, you know, we're learning over and over again what it means that just because it says you're not in a high risk area doesn't mean that you're not high risk. So I just want to share with, with our listening audience that we are doing everything we can in the insurance, Florida Insurance Roundup and with our team. And we'll have a link to all the information that we've discussed here today. And we take the notes so you don't have to. And and we invite you to like our podcast and to share it with your colleagues and friends on your own social media platforms. And of course, nothing makes us happier than to hear from you. You know, what's your flood experience or suggestions? You can call us and leave a comment or question on air right here at the Florida Insurance Roundup by dialing 850-388-8002. That's 850-388-8002. Or send me an email, Lisa Miller at lisamillerassociates.com. And with that, that's our Florida Insurance Roundup for today. And I appreciate you being a part of it. And remember, at Lisa Miller and Associates, we've got a passion for policy and client success. I'm Lisa Miller. And until next time, stay safe and dry. Oh,
This has been Lisa Miller and Associates, Florida Insurance Roundup, your podcast on the people, issues, and regulations shaping Florida's insurance market. For more information on today's program, please visit us on the web at www.lisamillerassociates.com.